Perfect. Welcome to part two of the Star Trek discussion. <laughs> Just like last week, uh, Sam is frozen in carbonite somewhere in New Jersey, and we don't know if we can get him out, nor do we really care to get him out, because, you know, he's probably going to fetch a good price from Jabba. I got Grant here with me, just like last time. Hey. And we are ready to get to the part of the discussion I'm sure everybody was waiting for last week. Which Star Trek movies suck, how they suck, why they suck, and just the depth of our fucking hatred for all the things that are awful and wrong with Star Trek. So it's going to be a a very negative podcast overall. Not, Not really. No? You don't think so? No, I, like- I think because we can do a, we can do an objective analysis of of these movies. Okay, but I mean, like a little bit maybe. The objective analysis of your, you know, CAT scan might indicate you have cancer. That's a negative result. True, yeah. true. But you know, there there are things that I like about each one of these Star Trek movies, with the exception of one. But uh, overall, they just fail. See, there are things I like about them, too, but I like them because they're bad. Like, that is the reason I find enjoyment in watching them. Because there are some parts that are just awful. Yeah, I I mean, that's totally a legit reason to like them. I think they just be, they take on this life of camp, and people respond to that. So that, that's, I think that's a legit reason. And so we started off last time with our... Star Trek film that was the dead center neutral one that's neither good nor bad that is just a black hole and we decided that was Star Trek Generations. Yep, Star Trek Generations is the the neutral. Right, and for people who weren't listening or listened to it really fast, last week we did our countdown with <clears throat> excuse me, Wrath of Khan and The Voyage Home kind of dueling for the top two spots. And then we had Undiscovered Country in third place. Uh, what was... Star Trek Three was up there, and before that was First Contact. Right. Right. Or oh, I think that might have been reversed, maybe. Yeah, Star Trek First Contact after Undiscovered Country, and then Star Trek Three after First Contact. And then we get to our dead neutral, Star Trek Six. So, what comes after Star Trek Six? It going in the other direction. So that would be... Was Generation Star Trek 6? Or the 6-1 in our uh, little routine. I mean, what... Okay, so for yeah. those of you who weren't aren't clear on what we're doing here, Generations is like the middle of the spectrum. It's zero on the number line. Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home, they're, you know, to the right of the number line. There are higher numbers. And now we're going to the left. We're going in the movies in descending order of quality to get down to what we consider to be the worst Right, so the movie that comes right after Star Trek Generations may not objectively be a bad movie. Like everything on the scale that's left of Generations doesn't mean that it's just 100% bad. We're ranking them in terms of proportion, how bad they are in comparison with the others. And so the one in seventh place has a lot of things right about it and interesting about it. And it works for a lot of people, but for a lot of people, it just never clicked. And to me, that is Star Trek The Motion Picture, the one that started the entire franchise. Now, that's from 1970. 1979. And um, I think you told me this originally. It was supposed to be a relaunch of a new series. Yeah, I, th- I think the the thing... 
Well, let me let me just back up by saying the the thing that people often come at Star Trek motion picture with is that it's boring. It is boring. It's boring in a certain way, and they obviously learned that lesson with Wrath of Khan, where the pacing is just much, much better. I think that's the thing that people, when they say boring, I think that's what they really mean about Star Trek motion picture, is that the pacing is so bad and so slow in some places, and it just suffers from a real lack of action. Another criticism that I've read a lot is people call it too cerebral, which... I think actually has some merit to it because you really have to understand the history of Star Trek to get how this movie came about in the way that it did. So if you go back to the 60s, Star Trek lasted three seasons, and the thing people don't really get is that during those three seasons, Star Trek really never had uh, a huge fan base. It was perpetually on the verge of being canceled. So the reason why it only survived three seasons is not because NBC was stupid and pigheaded and tried to kill it, which, you know, they did, but that wasn't the whole reason that it failed. All right. So it lasted after the first season and the second season only because of a concerted letter writing campaign that Gene Roddenberry kind of spurred everybody to do. And then. Instead of using that goodwill and putting it in a slot where it could win, NBC put it in their 10 o'clock Friday death slot because they didn't want to conflict with uh, their Monday schedule for some, you know, forgettable comedy variety show that nobody will ever remember. Yeah, what was in that time slot? I don't know. Yeah, nobody yeah, knows. <laughs> because it was probably a fucking stupid show that nobody remembers, but at the time it was probably getting better ratings than Star Trek. So Star Trek basically was never popular when it was originally on the air. It only became popular in the 70s when it was in reruns, in syndication. And that's where it was being shown on you know continual loops through a lot of channels on TV. Uh, that's where the fan base came from. That's when the convention started. That's when the groundswell started that really propelled them to make this movie. And actually Gene Roddenberry had had an idea for a Star Trek movie since the early 70s, and he actually wrote a script called The God Thing, which actually has many of the elements that ended up in Star Trek TMP in there. It's just that at the time, he couldn't get it off the ground because he didn't have the kind of support. Fast forward to the later 70s, and you've got things like Star Wars coming out, and 1976 with, you know, there's a lot of sci-fi movies starting to come out. You know, you had Close Encounters and... A lot of other great things. And so what the executives at Paramount decided to do is, oh, we're going to make a new Star Trek TV series. Now, they had had an idea before that of turning it into a movie, and they had gone through, like, several drafts, and they actually brought in some, like, really big heavyweights, like Ray Bradbury and, uh, I think, Ted Sturgeon and Harlan Ellison, who had written some of the original series episodes, and that didn't work out. And then they decided, okay, we're going to turn it into a TV series, and it was going to be called Star Trek Phase 2. And everything that you see in Star Trek The Motion Picture is basically Phase 2 stuff, things that were designed for Phase 2 sets and storylines, which is really interesting to me as a Star Trek fan because then Star Wars came out and immediately the executives at Paramount, who some recognizable names like Jeffrey Katzenberg, you may know him as the guy who uh, was one of the founders of DreamWorks and he's a uber billionaire now, and people like Barry Diller and Michael Eisner, 
these guys were all at Paramount at this time. And what they decided to do was, okay, we're going to take phase two and we're actually going to make a full length feature movie about it. And so keep in mind that they already had the sets and stuff. They were already building sets and everything for phase two. And they already had stories that they were going to do. And then they decided we're going to turn it into a movie. And so they had to go through this whole big process of not only converting a, a usable script into a feature length one, but finding the right director who turned out to be Robert Weiss and, just a lot of other things that really screwed up how this movie was made. And I think that's where it got lost in translation and became the movie that we got on the screen, which they took elements from Gene Roddenberry's original script and kind of fused it with a bunch of other ideas that had come in various other scripts along the way. And then we ended up getting Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I think is a really enjoyable movie if you're going to watch it the right way. And what is the right way? Just don't expect it to be a really, really exciting, well-paced movie. I mean, when I watch it, I think of it mostly as a big two-and-a-half-hour-long episode because that's essentially what it started out as. I, I, The movie, for me, it's just if there was a different edit of it that I could watch, I might like it better. But I would actually put Star Trek 2009 ahead of it on the ranking here. So I would say that the, the next, the film that goes from neutral to bad on the ranking is star Trek. Oh nine. I can't put the motion picture that close to being a neutral film because it is just so the pacing is horrific as an audience member. And I'm not watching it like it's an episode. I'm watching it like it's a movie because they sold it to me as a movie. So I, I just can't, I don't know, suspend my want for an actual plot or some sort of forward progression. Again, I think if you had a different cut of it and move some stuff around, it might work better. Or cut some stuff out, it might work better. Well, yeah, I agree. If <clears throat> if they had done a better editing job and maybe put a little more action in this movie, especially towards the beginning, I think it would have been a much better movie. I disagree about there not being a plot. I actually think there's a really, really good plot and a really, really good story at the heart of this film, but it just doesn't come out on screen because they did not pace the movie the right way. There's just nothing going on in this movie for the longest time. And one of the explanations that is often given for that is, you know, people had only seen Star Trek in reruns for about a decade before this movie came out. So one of the explanations is that this is a movie really made for hardcore Star Trek fans who were the sustaining life force of Star Trek at the time. So the 10 minute sequence of seeing the enterprise and the huge long sequence of the enterprise traveling into the V'ger cloud, that was basically meant to be eye candy for the hardcore fans, which yeah, I think was a mistake, but I understand why they did it because the people hadn't seen the enterprise really for 10 years and they'd never seen it on a big screen. So why not wow them? It just doesn't hold up. You know, you can totally tell it was a movie that's made for its time and not meant to live beyond that time. Unlike wrath of Khan and the other star Trek movies, I think. I just as an audience member though, like it, I understand they're trying to go over something, but I'm only limited to what I can see on the screen and what the characters are telling me. So if, if the plot of the film is in there, you know, I can't suss it out if no one's going to help me. 
I, I can't, if you know, that's the equivalent of staring at a blank screen for two hours and trying to figure out what the plot of a movie would be. And say what you will about Star Trek 2009 and J.J. Abrams and too many explosions, and I have a lot of issues with that movie, but one of them isn't a lack of plot. Like, I at least I know what's going on. It's retarded and stupid, but I know what's supposed to be happening, and it is happening. And I think that there's action, not in the sense of explosions and shit, because that's not Star Trek, but characters are furthering their goals and attempting to, you know, move the plot along and do things. That's my issue with the motion picture, is that there's a lot of times when it's just like, take away the music, take away the, you know, the FX track, and it's just like a silent void of just boring shit happening, like that V'ger cloud sequence is just, you gotta cut that down to 30 seconds and it would've been okay. Right, and, you know, to their credit, they did an amazing job with the visuals in this movie. I know people like to knock that a whole bunch, but I actually think the visuals hold up really well, and especially when they cleaned it up for the, the director's cut edition that they did in 1999. I think that the visuals in this in Star Trek motion picture are just really good, especially for their time. I mean, this they got an Oscar nomination for visual effects, and they were coming off the heels of things like Star Wars, which really changed the game in terms of how you shoot uh, a sci-fi movie and how you do visual effects and was very influential so that they were able to pull that off in less than a year after their biggest competitor got their groundbreaking movie out there. I think that's amazing. I totally agree with you. It's, it's too long. It's not paced well. It's got shit in the wrong places. And I don't, we don't actually don't see much of that character interaction and development that we see in the original series episodes. I think this movie, if it suffers from any one thing, it's the fact that they try to make it a big idea movie to me. Like they try to make it a big idea movie in the sense that it all revolves around discovering what's at the heart of this mysterious V'ger cloud. And that kind of drives the whole movie, except that if you're never going to give them a hint about what's in the cloud and what's going on until the end of the movie, then it gets boring, really boring. Yeah. Just that's why I can't rate it as highly as JJ track, because in that, you know, who, the antagonist is, you know what they're working against from the beginning. You know more or less kind of what the 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 force against them is plotting, what it's trying to accomplish. And this is just like a mysterious non-entity cloud thing shows up and it's a Voyager space probe at the center of it, you know, surprise fucking two hours later. Yeah, yeah, but to me, the, see, it's not a lack of a good antagonist in the motion picture. I think that V'ger is actually a really good antagonist it's, and the motivation for V'ger is a really good one. It's just that they don't explain that to you or they don't show that to you until so far in the movie that you're either completely engrossed in it or you've lost all interest. There's no in-between. That's that's the problem with it to me. I think that, like, see, to me, it's the exact opposite. Like, I have Star Trek 2009 after the motion picture, whereas you have that order switched around. Mm -hmm. And that's because, like... Star Trek 2009, first of all, it's not Star Trek. Second, the the plot in so many ways doesn't make sense. There's so many logical errors and stupid shit going on. And the villain, I don't believe Nero is a good villain. No, he's not. He His motivation is really dumb, and the actions he takes are just also really stupid. And 
I don't understand how they expect people to think that's a coherent uh, plot and a villain. Whereas in motion picture, we know why V'ger is traveling to Earth. We know why it's doing the things that it's doing. It has a clear motivation. It has like it has an actual very clear need, and it's not revenge or something cheap like that, like they do with Nero. And they don't really explore why. It's it's that it wants to evolve and. I think that was a cool topic to explore in a in a sci-fi movie because they had done that a little bit in an episode, uh, the Changeling, in the original series with the this probe called Nomad, which had fused with like an alien probe, and they kind of blew up that idea in this movie into like a much bigger canvas. And so I think the motivation for the villain in motion picture is great to me. The place where in motion picture really fails is again like what we talked about the plot and the pacing of it, but also like the death of a thousand cuts by all like the little things like the sound design is really wonky. The sound blaster stuff that they use, like the, the mechanized thing for the V'ger noise and all those noises they use in the movie. It just sounds really dissonant. A lot of times, um, the costumes and the sets, I don't think yeah, anybody the, in any future would be wearing that the shit. The bell bottom pants. Yeah, need to go. Yeah, that those were just so stupid, and the way they made the Enterprise, they took out all the color of the Enterprise, which I didn't like that at all. I thought that it made it 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 made it so steam so sterilized, you know. Whereas in the original series, it was very colorful, and you and you could tell like what things meant, and it actually increased your engagement with what's going on in the bridge and stuff. Now it's like. The bridge is all white. I don't get it. And and it doesn't look white in a good way. It looks white in a way like somebody who designed a 70s office building would make it white. You know? It looked like the cubicle interior. I don't think any of that really bothers me too much. For me, it's just that I'm stuck there for two hours until the last you know 20 minutes of the movie explain everything to me. And it's like, all right, well, fuck that. As retarded as Nero's plan is and is ill-conceived as his motivations are. At least I'm informed of them while they're happening. Okay, he's really mad because Spock didn't stop Romulus from being destroyed. Okay, he wants to kill people in the Federation now, and he wants to blow up Vulcan to make an example of the people, of Spock's people who couldn't help him. It's really dumb, but I get it. Versus a cloud shows up, we're flying through the cloud, we're flying through the cloud, we're flying through the cloud. Okay, now we see what's inside the cloud... We're exploring it, we're scanning it, we're talking about it, but nothing about it is becoming clear. Then we're inside the central chamber of the probe, and okay, now fucking everything, like the plot's here on the ground, like somebody left the script here, let's read it. That just bugs the shit out of me as a person watching it. Well, bottom line for it being sci-fi, I'll just always place motion picture ahead of Star Trek 2009 because I think it's better science fiction. Like it actually attempts to address big ideas, whereas Star Trek 2009 is basically a fucking cheap car chase action movie with spaceships. Yeah, but I have more fun watching it, unfortunately. Yeah. I guess that just doesn't mean it's good sci-fi to me. Yeah, but my my ratings on these aren't necessarily, are they good sci-fi? It's just, are they an enjoyable film to watch? Because I think that was what my ultimate criteria was for rating The Voyage Home the highest is I had the most fun watching it. 
Yeah, but it was also good sci-fi, I think, and that's what makes it enjoyable. I just have a good time watching it. I'm not so much of a purist, I guess, that I need to have a compelling sci-fi plot. If I do, you know, it doesn't need to be quite that high concept. Like, we don't need to be dusting off our Heinlein books here and jerking off to Adventures in Space magazine from 1940. I think there's a happy medium where, you know, you can have a plot where things happen and the story progresses, but you can still have big ideas moving into that. Yeah, that movie's not Star Trek 2009, though. No, but it's... Star Trek 2009 is more that movie than the motion picture to me because it goes motion picture goes too far to the cerebral boring side of things. You just can't have a movie where nothing happens for two hours and you resolve everything in the end. I mean, that's that's an M. Night Shyamalan movie. All right, I guess we're never going to agree on that. No, I don't think so. So let's move on then. Well, I think we discussed 2009. Yeah, and that's a sack of shit. But it's less of a sack of shit than the motion picture. No, it's not. But I think we discussed both of them. So what would be after those two for you then? Um, Let's see. What do we got left? We have Insurrection. We have Nemesis. Nemesis, Insurrection, Into Darkness, Star Trek V. That's it? I think that's it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to say Insurrection. Yeah, I'd put Insurrection next to only because it's... it just it has some sort of coherent plot going on versus Nemesis, but it's just a stupid movie. Yeah, it's just didn't need to be made. Yeah. You can tell from the very first sequence where Picard and Worf have to sing some stupid uh song with Data and get Data to like put his shuttle down or something cuz he's his his android stuff has gone haywire for some reason. Now, that's after Data has run through the settlement, though? Yes. Yeah, which raises a whole bunch of Star Trek issues for me because the Federation has cloaking devices now. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they they weren't into that. They have a personal cloaking device, which, again, I'm pretty sure that they really weren't into that. And they have their observatory next to the town. Like, I thought that the Who Watches the Watchers episode, they established that the Federation observes things from far away. And they have, you know, a sensor package on their ship that can observe, you know, who brushed their teeth last on a planet of a billion people. Yeah, that's that's but, what I mean. Like, why don't they just study them from in orbit? Yeah. <laughs> or if you have to do it from the planet, you know, not in the middle of their town. Like, that's just so stupid. Yeah, So, but but the plot demanded that uh, they violate those those norms and put their little facility on the planet so that they can have that scene where Data runs through the village and reveals himself. I just think that there could have been a better way to do that. Like, don't even put data, I don't know, frying his brain or something. Just have somebody, have somebody's, like, suit run out of juice or, you know, their isolinear chips break. That always happens. Isolinear chips are always fucking up. And they decloak in the middle of the village. And that's, hmm, what's this guy doing? Or somebody, I don't know, breaks their leg. Something to discover that there's people there. And then the villagers are like, yeah, what the fuck is this? And the Federation has to come clean because they have to come pick up their guy. I just hate the whole plot of this movie. Well, yeah, the whole plot so of the movie stupid. makes no sense. Like but. the they're like, oh, you know, we want to like collect all the special radiation from the planet and use it on our fucked up faces to to fix ourselves, and then you know the planet will be rendered uninhabitable. I I just don't I don't get it really. 
and and was they it, don't really it, it does it just doesn't make sense. I hate it. And the the whole like oh, we're going to rebel against Starfleet because the radiation on the planet is making us feel younger and rebellious and stuff and Data says lock and load. That killed the whole movie right there. That's where I stopped paying attention. I'm just wondering why the the did they ever say why the the Sona can't just live on the planet again? That's again, like I don't get that. It's like okay. they were supposedly exiled for trying to rebel against the leaders of the planet and they're like the children that left the planet. It's a big fucking planet. Just move to the other side of it. Yeah, I, they want the radiation cuz the the deal is the Sona are like a hundred plus years old each, and they're using you know medical technology to stay alive versus the magic radiation, and they want to collect all the radiation so they can make themselves young and immortal like the people on the planet. But can't again? You just go back to the planet and hang out. Wouldn't that do the same thing? Yeah, and you can. Their whole beef was, oh, uh, you know, we didn't want to follow the rules of the elders on the planet who said that we should shun technology and uh, never leave the planet. Let me stop you right there, though. For people who shun technology, they know how to repair data. They know what a hollow ship is. It's not an advanced concept for them. They're cool with spaceships. They're totally fine with the Enterprise. They know what isolinear tag drones are. They know that the caves won't let them be transported out because of the mineral deposits in there. Like, how right. do Amish people know all this? Right, and yeah, some some of that I buy because they, they say in the movie that they're not native to the planet, that they came there from another world where there was like a technological war or something like that, and they fled to this planet to escape that, and they shunned all technology. So I guess that means that they knew some stuff about how things worked and advanced technology, but... Still, they've been isolated for like what, like two hundred years or something like that. Yeah. And still, they know like how all these things in the modern times work. Either their civilization was just really more advanced than the Federation is at this time, or somebody made a goof. Well, I guess the way they'd explain that is saying that you know, since the the mineral or not the minerals, the radiation prevents you from aging. The the colonists there who know technology are the people who left the planet originally. Yeah. But I just refuse to believe that somebody who hasn't had contact with something for 200 years just picks it right back up and goes, oh, of course, this is how you do it. Yeah, somebody's violating their rules and practicing building positronic brains on right. the side. Yeah, you. plus that shit wasn't even invented 200 years before, so they wouldn't have known about it in the first place. Yeah, and again, it just comes back to me that for the Sona, like, just settle on the other side of the planet. They've already established that all these these Baku people, there's not that many of them. It's it's a large planet. You can just move to the other side of it, and you'll get the same radiation stuff and get to live your lives, and you can still have your spaceships and go off-world and do what you want and not have to follow their rules. The That's just the crux of the plot not making sense. Yeah, it's just... There's no reason for the conflict. Right, and there's no character development either. Nothing. We don't find out anything about Picard or Data or any of the other crew members that we do get in some of the other movies like Generations and First Contact. So like in Generations at least, you know, we learn more about Picard's extended family and 
he has to deal with his his brother and his nephew dying in a fire or something, which you know, besides being kind Making of like no a, sense, right? It just makes no sense because they have like weather control systems and stuff on Earth. But anyway, yeah. uh, and in First Contact, you know, Picard has to deal with his his trauma over being assimilated by the Borg, and Data has to deal with temptation to be human and stuff like that. None of that happens in this movie. Nothing. It's just like a straight, you know, ah, we're going to get our phaser rifles and, you know, fuck shit up. And Picard takes his shirt off and, you know. Yeah, Picard's in his wife beater for the last part of the movie, blowing up the evil satellite that's going to... And just... I'm even thinking now, though, it doesn't Data fly around in, like, the, the, run, the captain's... The captain's yacht, yeah. Yeah, which is a dumb idea in and of itself, number one. But if he's up there flying around in the captain's yacht, which clearly has weapons on it because he does shoot them a few times, why doesn't he just blow up the satellite? Yeah, he could have just blown up the solar collector. Yeah, he could have just done that. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting mad just talking about this stupid movie, so we should move on. Oh, there's more to talk about with it, though. Like, it Really? Just, is yeah, there? Yeah, there is. Like what? I guess just the the concept of the hollow ship. Like, why did you even need that? If your plan is to relocate them somewhere that they're going to know obviously isn't where they came from, just fucking pick them up. I mean, you have phaser rifles, right? You could just kill them if that's what you want to do. You're going to kill them anyway with the radiation collector. I just, the whole plot, like, it doesn't, nothing makes sense. I mean, as much as other plots in Star Trek movies are just convenient excuses for something to happen... This whole there's no reason for any of this to happen. I just mean, based on how the Federation's acted in the past, they would either make them leave themselves without this whole hollow ship thing, or they would just not let the collector go off. They would prevent the Sona from doing that. Or they would negotiate a settlement so that both peoples could share the planet, just like they did in a te- Next Generation episode between the Native American tribe and the Cardassians, right? Yeah, it's I'm just it's really confusing to try and put together like why any of this shit needs to happen. And then there's Data acting like a retard with the kid, the same kid who plays I think young Colonel O'Neill. Oh god, and he has like the really horrible computer generated little furry thing as his pet. Oh, his pet like flying squirrel thing. Yeah, and, and it's like the worst CGI. Yeah, and Data has to play for two hours a day or something, and. The only cool thing is that Jordy can see with his eyes. Like, that's the only character moment, I think, in the entire movie. Yeah. Which is, it's not really a whole lot. But and it lasts for 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, it lasts for 30 <laughs> seconds. But, I mean, LeVar Burton's trying. He's a good actor. And I think that's the one character moment in the movie, aside from Captain Picard going to the armory and saying, like, yeah, we have all these nuclear weapons and the plasma launcher and everything. And let's take the captain's yacht down there and blow shit up. Yeah, the, I can just see what ran through the heads of the people who made this movie. And, a lot of and, coke, right? And well, maybe. And yeah. no disrespect to them because they are responsible for some really, really good stuff in Star Trek too. But it's like right after First Contact came out, I'll bet that they said, "Oh shit, we now we know, now we get it. You have to put a lot of action in Star Trek. That's how you do it." But they couldn't come up with a good plot that achieve that goal no and so they made insurrection because the ultimate goal was to make money for the movie studio so they were going to do it any way they could and they they found out oh let's juice the movie with action let's dial back the the story a little bit 
and let's juice the movie with action, and then we're going to get more money out of it. And it didn't work out because First Contact actually had a good story. Insurrection didn't. But you think they'd learn their lesson with that, but then they made Nemesis, which had even more action and a, a less of a plot. Right. And it, I mean, I think actually the story in Nemesis is slightly more coherent than Insurrection. Like it's it makes slightly more sense, but not by much. I just think all that's my next movie on the worst list. I don't know about yours. Uh well, do you have anything else to say about Insurrection? No, no, I, I said my piece. It, yeah. it, the movie makes no sense. I'm done with that fucking shit. Like, I'm not going to watch it, even though I have the DVD, probably ever again, unless I need to uh, extract information from uh, ISIS prisoner or something. I would only watch that movie with a huge blunt. That's the only <laughs> way I would do it. Because at least then you can just smoke a little bit and forget where you are. Yeah, you should ask Sam about that. Yeah, we'll have to ask Sam uh, what his perceptions of the movie are. Yeah, uh, I guess for me, it's it is really a tie for we're on the penultimate bad movie, right? This is well third to worst, right? So for me, then it is it's really a tie between Star Trek Five and Nemesis, and I just I honestly don't know where I would put those two in yeah. the lineup because there's so many things that are wrong with both of them and they came, both came out and they're such crap. Yeah. It's just really hard to distinguish which one is worse. I would put Star Trek V on a lower rung only because in addition to not making a whole lot of sense, it introduces just some mind-bogglingly retarded stuff. I know I say that a lot, but... Kirk fighting God who turns out to be a false God and being led there by Spock's evil brother. Like, fuck that shit. At least Nemesis has some sort of conflict that you can get behind. You can appreciate what's happening a little bit. But then Cybok just shows up and is like, yeah, I know where God is. Let's go find him. And by the way, there's like an antique sailing ship steering wheel in the ship that we're going to play with and stand around. But it has the plaque on it to boldly go... Great. That's awesome. It's got a plaque on it. it. Yeah, I just can't get behind anything that happens in Star Trek V at all. So I gotta say it's Nemesis. I mean, I hate that they killed Data. I hate that the plot is Picard as a clone. It's like the sixth day that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, you gotta stop your clone. Just some goofy shit going on in there, but as much as I hate the Nemesis idea, at least I can get behind like the Romulan intrigue going on versus, you know, Spock's evil brother found God. Yeah, the thing about Star Trek V that's really surprising me is that on paper, it sounds like it would be such a strong movie. Surprise, it's not. Right. And that that is a huge surprise, because if you just saw the concept on paper, it's like, oh, Spock has a half-brother who's a crazy religious fanatic, and he hijacks the Enterprise and takes it to the center of the galaxy where there's like an evil God creature waiting that sounds like an interesting movie. Like, that sounds like a Star Trek movie that would be interesting and that I would want to watch. It just didn't happen that way. <laughs> you know, the Star Trek V movie I'd rather watch is the one... I think we should back up, though, and explain a little bit about uh, contract law here. Contracts, for those of you who are not attorneys. There's something called a favored nations clause, which is what you can get in your contract, which is kind of like a favored nation status for trading. So if Grant and I had a contract with Paramount, 
and Grant's contract said he could he got paid ten million dollars to do this and he had the chance to write and direct a movie. The favorite nations clause would mean that I get ten million dollars and I get to write and direct a movie too. So Leonard Nimoy directed Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy had a favored nations clause with Paramount at the time. So then Star Trek V, William Shatner says, hey, I have an idea for a movie and I want to direct. Which is how we get to the, supposedly, I don't think this is, this has ever been uh, found. No, I don't think anybody has a copy of the script. But the concept was that Kirk, Spock, and Bones get to the center of the galaxy and it turns out that that thing really is God. And then they have a, a climactic fight with God. I think God kills Bones, and then a chasm opens, and they go into the River Styx, the mythological river from Greco-Roman mythology that uh, Sharon would cart you across, right? Yeah. To the underworld. They they go across there to get Bones back, and Kirk and Spock are fighting demons who are trying to rip their flesh off. And they jump back in the river, and they're swimming back, and Kirk alone, because William Shatner was directing this, has the strength to swim back, carrying Vulcan and uh, McCoy with him. And then they kill God. I would have watched that movie, because it just sounds amazing, like how retarded that is. That would have made, like... That would have made the, the <laughs> list of most memorable Star Trek movies for the reason that it was, like, absolutely the worst... Yeah, it might have been one of the Jerk worst off, movies ever ego-stroking <laughs> pieces of shit ever put on the silver screen. I mean, think about that, though. <laughs> William Shatner writes it so Captain Kirk is not only able to kill God, but he's also the only one who can drag his friends across the river while being attacked by demons. Like, that's just so retarded. <laughs> yeah. I can just see... Kirk clotheslining a demon like oh, he yeah. does to the the president in Star Trek Six, and he's like Kirk Enterprise. <laughs> Except that, you know he wouldn't be doing anything charismatic like that. I don't know. Was this Fat William Shatner in this one night, or was he on like the Juice Diet? Because I know he was on the Juice Diet in Six. Uh, no, I th- I think he was clearly like this was the Girdle era. Okay, yeah, because yeah. I, I know he got in better shape for Six. He's on the the carrots and Juice Diet, but yeah. So it's William Fatner in Star Trek Five. That, that would have been great. Flappy William Shatner swimming across the river with his clothes torn up, like carrying Spock and Bones to kill God. Perfect. Going to find out that it's Cybok has led them to a creepy alien entity that says it's God, but it's really not. And then they phaser him to death, and Cybok goes, ah. It's just awful. Yeah, this, I don't know, you know, it it fails for so many reasons, and I think we've addressed just the first reason that it fails so bad, the story. Yeah. <laughs> just The story is just a huge ego stroke for William Shatner. It is, yeah. It's, it's Kirk fan fiction is what it reads right. like. It, absolutely, that's a perfect way to describe it, because he not only directed this movie, he wrote or co-wrote the script, and I'm pretty sure that during they had a lot of edits during the movie and that he was responsible for most of those. Yeah. Yeah, and so this is basically like Kirk's movie about Kirk, which it, it just doesn't work at all. <laughs> and I mean, the story's so bad, especially... Uh, I, I think the worst part of the plot is all the forced humor. It it It's yes. stupid, it doesn't work, and most of it's not even funny. It seems really forced, and we just got the movie where it's like part comedy, The Voyage Home. 
which did it so much better than this one could have ever hoped to do, and yet William Shatner insisted on forcing all this like buddy cop shit into this movie. I'm sure he thought it was funny though. It, well, it wasn't. I'm I'm no. sorry. I'm, I I know he realizes that now because he's admitted it, and bless him for admitting that. <laughs> but at the time, I think he was just like off in his own world, and the studio fucked them for not, you know, pulling the reins on him and saying like, you know, whoa there, don't do this. <laughs> I have to wonder just how what was in their contract though, because if that favored nations clause was like ironclad and drafted the way it should have been, I don't think the studio really could have stopped them short of just not making the movie. Yeah, the the thing that I the thing that sticks in my head the most about this movie is actually the the poster they used to advertise the movie before it came out, which was uh, why are they installing seat belts in theaters? And you know, it was supposed to ostensibly that means like, oh, because the movie's so exciting, and I'm thinking, no, it's actually because they don't want you to escape from yeah. the, from the theater. You can't get up and ask for a refund, right? You can't, so you can't leave. You have to watch the whole thing. I mean, it wouldn't be surprised if there are some guys behind the curtain with guns like pointed at everybody just making them enjoy it the best thing to come out of this movie is the marshmallow dispenser yeah oh well you know that is a pretty cool toy i have to admit that's what i'm saying it's the best thing to come out of it the the movie itself but again it's cool but it doesn't make any goddamn sense like why would anybody take this huge long like (laughs) stick thing and you know it's huge have you seen the thing in the movie it's huge like and put it put it in their pocket and then, oh, it dispenses like, you know, five marshmallows. Marshmallows. Marshmallows, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it dispenses five of them. And it's like, <laughs> what's wrong just, with a bag? Yeah. This is the 23rd century. <laughs> like, we invented the bag like in 1920 something. I mean, you think like they, you know, plastic bags, right? Yeah. We've had those since the 60s. And <laughs> like, yeah, this is like 200 fucking years later. They couldn't, they couldn't come, and they came up with a less efficient solution. To right, haul the stuff around. Yeah, for the, the weight and mass <laughs> of the, the marshmallow dispenser, you could have like 10 bags of marshmallows. Right. So, yeah, so the marshmallow thing is just, and it's a small symptom of the larger isn't problem. Isn't this close to the time that they would have had replicators invented anyway? Uh, no, I think replicators were later. Oh, really? Damn, so I was going to say that it makes it even right, worse. Up until, this, up until that point, remember, like all the ships had food processors, so kind of like... Kind of like a replicator, but it just didn't replicate from base matter. I guess it reconstituted stuff from, like, you know, supplies they brought on the ship, but it did it automatically. All I remember is Kirk puts the red card into the slot in the wall and gets a chicken sandwich in the original series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the marshmallow dispenser, hate that. Um, even though it is a cool toy. It's a I cool thing to buy, but in the yeah. movie it makes no sense. And just... The retarded shit like making Nichelle Nichols sing that embarrassing song with the, the, oh, the, you know, when the, in the desert, yeah, the the fan th- waving song, like the yeah. little, yeah, what are those called? The courtesan fans, yeah, and that, I mean, I I don't like I really haven't seen much of her work outside of Star Trek, and I don't really know much about it, but I have to say, like, I think she's. A regal woman, that would be a good way to describe her. Making her do that is just, it's not regal. It's, its I mean, it's trashy stripper, bar, hooker kind of stuff. And I think she was even upset that they made her do that. I think I saw an interview once where she recalled that she was kind of mad about having to do that. What about Row, 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 Your Boat, though? That's also a song that, in the Again, movie. that's the forced humor that is really just 
dumbs the plot down considerably. The whole idea of Spock having the half-brother is pretty cool. And actually, I think Cybok's probably the most engaging character in the movie. Which is a huge insult, in my opinion, uh, to all the Star Trek characters. And just a testament to the fact that William Shatner messed up his own movie so bad. You know, Kirk's not as interesting as Cybok is in this movie. You know, the I, I really like the Kirk stuff we got in earlier movies where he actually had to deal with stuff and learn something. This movie, he's back to being the guy in the original series who never loses anybody, never loses a fight, you know, always willing to throw his shirt off and like, I'm afraid of nothing. You know, that kind of shit. Well, we saw that he was actually afraid of some stuff in, in like Star Trek 2, right? He was afraid of losing his best friend. He was afraid of getting old. Yeah, but remember, the original draft of this had him defeating God and punching demons, so... Well, right, he's afraid of nothing, right? right? <laughs> he's the implacable action man. And then just, you know, for me, other garbage things, too, about this movie stand out. Like, the fact that the visual effects are so fucking bad. And for, this... for Star Trek. Oh, yeah, and it's and they had some problem. They couldn't get ILM to do this movie. It, they were, it was conflicting with another movie ILM was doing, so they hired another... Uh, effects studio and man they just did an awful job it shows it shows it wasn't ilm yeah it show. i mean the the models look cheap uh you can tell it's a model in a lot of cases especially that scene where the klingon uh bird of prey is shooting the satellite mm, that yeah. looks so goddamn fake the scene where the enterprise goes into warp right before the torpedo hits it well yeah, that looks really fake, and the torpedo's moving at like two miles an hour, like, like right past there, and it doesn't, no sense of urgency that they were actually in any danger. Um, the shuttle thing looks really fake when they're flying on and off the Nimbus 3 planet. The shuttle's bad. Um, the only really good special effect in the movie is the stuff they did with like the Great Barrier thing. And that was like no models and stuff required. I think that was probably just like an art piece. Yeah, I think that and like the matte painting they used for the the god planet background thing. Yeah, I mean that that was really good, the matte painting part. But that involved, I think, nothing but an artist, a talented artist, doing a painting. Yeah, and to me, that's always a big problem with sci-fi because if you swing the pendulum too far one way or the other, it really takes you out of the sci-fi. It takes you out of the movie, and instead of getting the message, you immediately turn yourself off because you disbelieve it. So like Star Trek 2009, visual effects too much of the movie, right? And they're good, but they're too much of the movie, so there's no plot, really. Star Trek V, they're so bad that whatever plot there is, they're sucking you out of it because you're laughing at how stupid they are. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a, a disjointed feel coming from... Especially Star Trek Four, which had that awesome time travel sequence. Yeah. That's really weird and avant-garde, but it's also... Even, like, the, the spaceship part of that is shot really well, and it looks cool. I This looks like... Star Trek Five. that is, looks like the original series, kind of, as far as, like, the quality of the work. It's not quite as primitive, but it's really depressingly close for a big-budget studio movie, and it looks even more out of place because while the original series in the 60s, you had kind of the the crap model shots and stuff going on. The interior sets were, you know, obviously plywood in a soundstage with no air conditioner, so it kind of worked. 
but now you have the perfect set done indoors with great cameras, great lighting, and then the Buck Rogers model. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then just dumb stuff that you thought they would have figured out, but they didn't. Like the scene where they're in the uh, the turbo shaft and they use the rocket boots. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's like they're okay. There's like 85 <laughs> decks on the Enterprise. I'm, this is news to me. Yeah. I thought there were like 20, and and the, you know, <laughs> so it's like okay, they just increased the size of the ship like 200. <laughs> percent Oh, it was so they could have the rocket boots flight longer. The flight could last longer. Yeah, that just dumb. But let's talk about the rocket boots for a minute. It's the the way they're introduced is also a little interesting. Oh yeah, when Spock comes up to Kirk on the mountain and then saves him. Right, and then Kirk falls with like the disastrously bad green screen yeah. stuff behind him, and it like you can totally tell it's like not he's not really falling, and you know it doesn't even look like it, and and then Spock saves him with his hover boots. <laughs> I mean, what what year was this movie made? Nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, so they had this is around the time of Die Hard then when they had the awesome Hans Gruber fall out of Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah, that was nineteen eighty eight. Yeah, that looked. Like it actually happened, but I think it's because they actually filmed, you know, a dummy or a stuntman falling onto a, you know, a bouncy castle thing at the bottom. But I guess they chose to do this um, in the the new age way, which is to have William Shatner land on his back and flap his arms and go, whoa, on a green screen. Yeah. And then Leonard Nimoy comes down upside down on a crane with some smoking boots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't it didn't work. Very no. well. It didn't, it didn't come off as believable. And I will say the one truly bright spot about Star Trek V to me, the one thing that is perfect about this movie is the soundtrack. A yeah. great Jerry Goldsmith score, and it builds directly off of the iconic great one he did for Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I like that in this one, he actually takes a lot more time to develop his his theme for the Klingons. And that's actually something that, that has been repeated. So it's in the Star Trek Next Generation a lot. We saw it a little in Star Trek The Motion Picture. But now, since the Klingons are a villain in this movie, he really takes the time to build it up and develop it. And I think it's really cool. It sounds cool. Uh, Cybok has a theme that's pretty neat. And they're using um, some synthesizer machines to do his theme, which that was all the rage in the 80s. And it actually sounds really cool. And just... It has this Star Trek sense about it. Like, it's very swashbuckling, adventurous music, whereas the music for The Voyage Home was not that memorable. So I like that they went back to Jerry Goldsmith and really got, like, a rousing score for this one. I think that's the best part of the movie. And if you have no interest in watching the movie, at least pick up the the soundtrack to give it a listen. I think the soundtrack does a lot to mitigate the shittiness of the movie. Because if I had a different soundtrack, I would say it's even worse than it is. Whereas, like, you know, the Voyage Home integrates the 80s music. Yeah. Because that's the time they're in. And that fits with the movie. And this has more of the Star Trek expansive adventure music. Because that's what they were trying to do. I guess Jerry Goldsmith n- knew they were making a Star Trek movie, but nobody else got the memo. Yeah. So he's trying his best, and it, it's good. But, I mean, even... Like the on the the soundtrack, the the theme starts with Cybok laughing, which you know is always great. Yeah, for some reason. <laughs> but it's cool, and it fits with the movie, as terrible as the movie is. And I feel bad for Jerry Goldsmith actually that he came back to do this, and then the movie sucks so bad. 
Right, but I think in his case, he has no shame because he delivered, just nobody else did. No, no, yeah, I just, I guess have, I, it would bother me to have my name on something like that. Yeah, but it, you know, at least he got paid. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he got paid. If, yeah. Uh, yeah, if he didn't get paid and fucking kill himself, it's an awful outcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's that's why this movie to me is worse than Nemesis because it's just like, the whole time you're watching it, you're just like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, and... Well, yeah, let's talk about Nemesis because we've spent a lot of time on Star Trek V. And like I said, I can't decide which of these two movies is worse. But Nemesis, it, it grates on you. It's basically, I think it's unwatchable. Yeah, it, it is a little grating. I mean, I I will watch it because it... I'll watch it in the same way that you try and watch somebody opening one of the doors that says push by pulling on it. <laughs> or, you know, a person who can't, like, people who can't step around each other who keep weaving side to side and in time with each other. It's just fascinating to watch. It's, it's like the guy who shits his pants at the airport. You just can't not watch. Yeah. But it, you're watching because it's it's just a tragic thing occurring in front of you. Yeah. Things, yeah. things I hate about this movie, uh, the plot sucks. I'll get out of the way the things I like. I like the Romulan focus. We've never had a movie about Romulans, so that was pretty cool. Yep. And they kind of developed the mythology a little bit more with the Remans. And yeah. I like the Remans. I like their design. It's pretty scary, and I like how they are supposed. They stay in the shadows. It's the most we've seen about the Romulans, I think, ever. Yeah, outside of the the TV series. Yeah, and well, even then, the TV series, it was kind of like a peripheral. Yeah, the like, most you really only saw Romulans on Romulan ships, not on Romulus. Yeah, it was very little to do part. with like how their how like the Romulan Senate actually goes and the fact that there is like it is very much like the Roman Senate that it's modeled off of and all of the, the horse trading and, you know, politicking. Yeah, I like that. And I like the visual effects in this movie. I don't think they're they have anything to be ashamed of with those. The space battles are, are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are really the only things that I like about this movie and the idea that they at least tried to give it like a coherent, meaningful story with Picard versus his self, basically his clone. It's a, it's a good kernel of an idea. They just never executed it well. Yeah. I like that idea. I just don't think that they, they did it the way it needed to be done. Yeah. I like all those same things. With the addition of, I like that Commander Riker finally took the promotion. Yeah, yeah. Get the fuck onto your own ship. Finally, already. he took and it. Why didn't they? I know they made books about the Titan mm-hmm. and Riker's time on the Titan. Yep. Why to God? I don't understand why they just if they were going to keep making movies, why they just didn't continue on with a movie about the Titan. Or why didn't they include the Titan in this movie? Yeah, in the same that's way a that good question. Like, Sulu was promoted off the Enterprise and was in the undiscovered country helping out. Yeah, actually, that would have worked a lot better. That would have been cool because one of the best criticisms of this movie is that Riker has nothing to do in the movie. Yeah, it would have been awesome if Riker was trying to concurrently solve another part of the mystery, and then he and the Titan show up to bust up the Nemesis or you know beam Picard off at the end or something. Yeah, that would have been more interesting than what actually happened. It's the Scimitar. Oh, sorry, the Scimitar. See, I forgot the ship's name because it, it fucking sucks. Yeah, I mean, it's a cool ship design, too. Like, that's the other thing I like about this movie. The ship designs are pretty cool. I like the redesigned Romulan Warbird, and I like 
the Riemann scimitar ship. It's pretty neat. It looks way different than any ship in Star Trek, which is cool. Yeah. It's too bad they just didn't use it to very good effect. I guess it's my issue with it is that it really started the plague in Star Trek that was like, we're just going to build a bigger ship for the bad guy. Like, and that's what makes him evil. And the scimitar is huge. It was built by the slave miners somehow in their secret slave mine shipyard next to Romulus. Oh, yeah, Shinzon's probably. secret base right yeah. on, you know, right on the, the shadow of Romulus. The fucking moon, basically, for Romulus, yeah. Right, so the entire Romulan fleet, you know, the huge portion of it is around that area. Yeah. and Nobody uh, saw that. Nobody saw him. Nobody noticed him building a giant ship. Yeah. Yeah, just shit like that. Plus, um, the, the Riemann... His little Riemann buddy, his like magic power to make his clone pain go away. Oh, like, what Ron, is that Ron, about? Ron Perlman. Yeah, yeah. Ron Perlman. He got a free burrito for showing up. I mean, Ron <laughs> Perlman's good. He's I like him in a lot of stuff he's in, but the the actual character, like, when was it established that the slave miner Romulans have magic powers to make clone pain stop? Yeah, like they what, didn't. What was that about? Yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so on to things we hate about this this movie. Uh, God, where where shall I begin? Uh, first, the opening scene. Maybe you want to start with the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was fucking retarded. People turning to stone and then shattering. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I mean the introduction of the Enterprise crew. The opening scene for them. Like, oh god, the wedding thing. Yeah, not Shinzon's oh, power grab. That's uh, all. That's all right. I mean, he killed the Senate. The, the way yeah. it happened was dumb, but okay, he killed the Senate. Fine, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I data singing. God damn it. <laughs> data singing. Uh, Wesley being back with no mention at all. Like, good for Will Wheaton that he's back in there, but maybe that deserved a mention of why he stopped traveling with that. Well, and Guinan's there too. Yeah. She says one thing. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, but at least it's ex- like a little bit logical for her to be there. But the last time we saw Wesley, he was leaving to travel with the Traveler in hyperspace and learn about the universe's mysteries. Like, did he get bored? Did he learn everything about the universe and come back? Like, yeah, I guess he stopped doing tr- favors for the Traveler. Yeah, I guess he did. <laughs> Stop sucking the guy's dick. So he dumped him back on Earth because he's wearing like the Starfleet dress jacket like everybody else. So he's back in the Academy. Yeah, for so the third time. That makes no sense. Uh Yeah, that god, it was I think it's data singing that really starts it just tells you right there this is going to be a bad movie. So it's buckle ominous. up. Ominous. Yeah, they should <laughs> put seatbelts in the theater for this one too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Staple your eyelids open yeah. too. It's where you know the trouble starting because then it's um then there's a talk about, uh, sadly, Major Barrett died a long time before this happened, but that that would have been, I guess, a redeeming feature to have Loxana Troy at her daughter's wedding, finally. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been okay, but without her. Right, and then we immediately, we get onto the Enterprise, and, you know, ho-hum, ho-hum, nothing going on. Then they find out, oh, there's a positronic brain signal coming from this like shitty planet where there's a bunch of retarded thug guys who run the planet and let's go check it out and so like obvious weird plot thing and it serves no purpose except to get them on the planet and do like a retarded dumb meaningless action sequence where they drive around like this uh this 
what is it like a Humvee basically? Oh, it's it's like a, a dune buggy. It it's looks... like a dune buggy with a giant phaser cannon on it. And yeah, they, they just drive it around for the sole purpose of like having a car chase action scene yeah. and Worf blowing people it, up with the phaser. It looks thing. like Mad Max is what it looks like. Yeah, and the whole point is they find oh a fucking clone uh, copy of Data called B four who is retarded. It, no, he and he actually is like he's developmentally disabled android. He's the beta version of Data and Lore. Yeah. And, oh, and he was put there by Shinzon to lure them, and like you know, he's like a sleeper agent or whatever. Where did Shinzon find him? Yeah, I, that's what I want to know. Like, we <laughs> never find that out in the movie. Uh, Just bought him at the flea market, I guess. Yeah, pretty sure that Lore and Data were the only two out there of the Data um, style android. Yeah, that Lore and Data were the only two, and then his Doctor Soong's wife was like the even better version. She didn't even know she was an android. Yeah, so no explanation on that. Uh, turns out before you know he's the sleep rage, and he like hacks into the Enterprise's computer and stuff. And oh, we can't detect that happening. What? Data, I'm, yeah, who locked yeah. out the computer in like three seconds in first contact, just slapped his hand against the keyboard a right. few times. They don't know that's going on. They nope. don't know that somebody's accessing these files and shit. Uh, okay. Um, well, I like Shinzon's actor, Tom Hardy. Yeah, he's all right. But Shinzon as a villain, just, he does not compel me at all. His motivation, okay, I understand his one motivation for trying to get Picard so that he can get his blood transfusion to, like, live. That's a good motivation. But his other thing, like, oh, I'm going to use my super radiation weapon to, like, destroy Earth or whatever... It just doesn't make any sense, again. Like, why is he going to do that? Does he need all of Picard's blood? Yeah, he needs a complete transfusion. See, that makes no sense to me in, like, the the medical technology of the time, why they couldn't just make more Picard blood with a sample. Yeah, they could have synthesized some Picard blood and just given it to him. And I'm sure if that was the position that Shinzon put out there, Captain Picard would have been okay with that. Right, and yeah. that could have at least led to some uh, peace negotiation or something, yeah. a show of goodwill, but no, it's like, because the movie demands this, we have to do it this way. Yeah, a complete transfusion, which makes no sense, but Shinzon is a clone created somehow, for some reason, out of Captain Picard's DNA, again, for some reason. He grows up on the slave miner planet, orbiting Romulus. Okay, okay that's another thing I don't get. They say in the movie that... He was designed to be like a sleeper agent, and they were going to artificially age him to be Picard's age and replace Picard. So they would have like a Romulan agent at the heart of the Federation. And then, like, some other government came to power and decided to scrap the plan. And then they send him to die in the yeah. slave mines. I like, why don't you just kill him? Like, why didn't they just kill him? Right. I mean, they were going to kill him anyway by mining, making him work to himself to death. Why not just kill him? Shoot him? Yeah. It's like nobody knows he exists anyway, and you certainly don't care about a human. So just why don't you just shoot him? Problem solved. There. <laughs> so I'm saying though, like it's just they create a clone out of Picard's DNA somehow for some reason. Put him in the Federation as though he's never going to be detected. Even though I think it's been proven that they can detect cloning through the, yeah. the DNA. And then he goes to the slave miner planet, hangs out with Ron Perlman, who has his magic powers to stop his clone pain. Right, and they they uh, and they he becomes like a general, and then they yeah, build like the super ship. They and, create a shadow parallel government in the mining planet, build a super ship, and then murder the entire leadership of the Romulan Empire. Like, 
what the fuck? Like, how does that happen? Yeah. I I don't get it at all. And then the action, like we said, that was good. Uh, the space battle was good. Then the really stupid stuff starts in where Riker has the obligatory fight scene where he fights Ron Perlman's character. Yeah, and the, the two secondary command characters fight each other. Right, and then Ron Perlman's guy like falls down like this huge shaft, which, again, is the Enterprise really that big? It seems like it's this endless like Death Star reactor core type. Thing. I mean, yeah, does it even have... like a, like? It has like 20 decks. That's but it, it seems like the, in the Enterprise, whenever they're in the Jeffries tubes or looking at it or whatever, every, all the space is kind of utilized. The only shafts in the ship are the turbo lift shafts. And even then, they, they're not... They're, they're not like that yeah, big. Yeah, they're not Death Star size. Right. So th- that seems a little unbelievable to me again. Uh, the stupid stuff, like all the posturing stuff, like Picard's like, oh, I have to finish this on my own and stuff and beams over or whatever. That's really dumb. Data flying across space to get onto the scimitar. That was kind of a stupid scene. I didn't like that at all. And then, of course, the ultimate slap in the face to every Star Trek fan in this movie is that they kill Data. They do a cheesy Wrath of Khan ripoff and have Data sacrifice himself so that he can save the Enterprise, right? So yeah. exact same thing as they did with Spock and Wrath of Khan, except this one was just... It's a cheap ripoff. And instead of Dr. McCoy, Data puts his brain in B4. Oh, yeah, and B4 starts singing the stupid song. Was Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head? I can't remember what it is. It's like, I'm a stupid android, and I'm never going to generate interest from fans. I'm a dipshit. Fuck my mouth. I think that's what the song was called. Yeah, and the only funny thing about that is that when they did the Star Trek Countdown comic series to the 2009 movie... (laughs) They actually start out in the prime Star Trek universe, and it actually shows that Data becomes the captain of the Enterprise because uh, he downloaded his consciousness as like kind of a virus program into B4 and basically like overwrote B4's personality. <laughs> so he basically killed B4 and took over his body. <laughs> he assimilated him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like that, but still, that's not contained within the movie. Yeah, it's not shown in the movie. If in the movie they had ended it on more of a definitive note that Data was still alive in before, all right, I could forgive them a little bit for killing Data because at the end of the day, he is he is like a, a collection of digital files that you, you could conceivably copy to a new Data. But the fact that he just dies in like a, an attempt, like you said, to replicate the Wrath of Khan, you know, Picard losing his right-hand man, it's, it's fucking stupid. It makes no sense. Well, and just the fact that Data was never even Picard's right-hand man. I think he was part of the, the primary trio. Well, in ter- I mean, in terms of rank and, like, Riker is, Data's the Spock character of Next Generation, but Riker is really the right-hand man, whereas in the original series, yeah. Spock was the science officer and the first officer. I mean, rank-wise, yeah, yeah Riker yeah. is above him, but I think that Riker, Data, and Picard are, like, the... McCoy, Spock, and Kirk. Yeah, see, I never got that sense in the movies. I always felt like it was just all about Picard and Data. They tried to force that in every one of those movies. Well, it didn't work in this one. Yeah. But let's talk about uh, the the Arthurian part of this, the, the weird thing going on. Like, they're trying to weave together, like, this, um, yeah, what is King Arthur's son? Uh... Is it Mordred? Yeah, Mordred. Yeah, Mordred. 
Right. The Morgan Le Fay son right. with Arthur. And the end of, uh, is that movie Camelot? Like where Mordred is impaled on the end of the spear and like is pulling himself towards Arthur. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the stupid Shinzon thing where how he dies. Yeah, like why are they right. trying to replicate the imagery? Like how, when was it established that Picard fucked an evil wizard? Or that Picard even thought of Shinzon like a son. Or he was his son. Like, yeah, when right. when is that? I think Picard, if anything, he probably, at least the movie indicates that he thought of Shinzon as, like, potential, his own potential, right? And he didn't, he wanted to help Shinzon because he didn't want Shinzon to fall into, like, the darker nature that Picard knows that is in himself. Yeah, because Picard has a dark side, right? Right, all right, yeah. where he smashes his little ships and all that. Yep. Yeah. I'm just, I think we've said all that needs to be said about Nemesis. It just, it's an awful movie. It's a really awful movie, but... And I won't watch it unless it's on TV and I have nothing else to do. Yeah, I don't think I would really... I'll watch Star Trek V if I have something to go along with it, you know, and a, and a pair of teeth, but... <laughs> Never, never Nemesis. It's just, it makes no sense. And I'll tell you what movie I wouldn't watch, even if I had a brick of, you know, prime Jamaican kush here, would be Star Trek Into Darkness. Our worst Star Trek movie. Yeah, you couldn't pay me enough to watch that movie. If it even counts as Star Trek. Well, it's got all of the Star Trek names in it. Yeah, it's it's (laughs) dead last. This one is, thanks J.J., the worst Star Trek movie made to date. And that's saying something. It really is. Yeah, he really went out of his way to to give us the biggest steaming turd he could possibly squeeze out. Yeah, I'm just, I'm so skeptical of why, because everybody has really tried to do the Wrath of Khan or tried to get those themes into their Star Trek movie, like we just talked about in Nemesis, they tried to shoehorn that one into the Next Generation cast. I guess J.J. wanted his crack at it, but it just makes no sense, like, whatsoever. Yeah, it's such lazy... This is such a lazy movie, I think, which is what pisses me off about it the most. It's lazy directing, lazy writing, most of all, from Roberta Orsi and Alex Kurtzman... This is so lazy. They couldn't even come up with a ri- an original story for a movie that's supposed to be uh, the revival of the Star Trek franchise, right? They're supposed to follow up a movie that wasn't that original or good in and of itself and didn't really uh, revitalize the franchise as they thought it would. I mean, it was financially successful, but Star Trek 2009 was not as successful as they wanted it to be. That's something that a lot of people don't know. And this movie was supposed to change all that. Well, it didn't because they were so goddamn lazy with how they wrote this thing and just everything about it, like cheap ripoff of even entire scenes of Wrath of Khan, Mm -hmm. the shoehorning of Khan as a villain into this movie, and then the whole run-up to the release where they were trying to convince everybody that Khan really wasn't in the movie. And then they, like, right at the end, they went, ha-ha, you know, he is in the movie. That was... I think that's a slap in the face to fans everywhere. And then other things like forcing nudity and stuff into the movie for no reason. Um, 
you know, putting like just eye candy, uh, the woman who plays Carol Marcus, I can't remember her name, Alice something, she has no point in being in the movie. She's just there to be Kirk's love interest and to like show off, you know, her bikini figure or whatever. Yeah, it smacks of Michael Bay a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it that is ridiculous. Let me pose a question to you though. This isn't something I've been struggling to figure out. And I really have thought about this. It just said so Khan gets put on the, the Botany Bay with the rest of his genetically engineered friends. Yes. After he's defeated in the nineteen nineties eugenics war. Right. That gets sent into space. Originally, in the original series, Kirk runs into him, beats him up with a plastic pipe, maroons him on the planet. Then Khan comes back in the Wrath of Khan, and it's the same guy. Here, the Bonnie Bay gets launched, and then the the Admiral... Admiral uh, Marcus? Yeah, Peter Weller, Robocop, Admiral Marcus, and the other people of the evil spy Section 31 find the Botany Bay pull Khan off, make Khan a deal that if you design us a spaceship that's super advanced with your 1990s knowledge, then we'll help your other frozen friends, but first you have to kill everybody in charge of Starfleet? I mean, it. how does that work? Like, that doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Yeah, I, I guess the only thing that I can think of is that Marcus kind of wanted to turn it into a dictatorship, at least. To oh no, I, I got that he was after power, but the, that's is, all I can pull out of it. Why is the frozen guy from 1993 going to be able to help you design the Excelsior? He wouldn't. Yeah, he wouldn't because even though Khan is genetically superior and genetically more intelligent than average humans, there's no way that he could come out of that deep freeze after hundreds of years and be able to design uh, the most advanced weaponry in the galaxy. Yeah, that I just didn't. And that's such a central point to the movie that I didn't really understand. If he had just gotten Khan out of the freeze and said, "Look, I need you to kill these people," okay, all right, I could follow along with that. But Khan's going to be the master assassin, and he's also going to just blow off the start, like the Utopia Planetary Yards. You know, they're going to be a bunch of fucking amateurs. He's going to show them how it's done with the '90s, like going to use his Marky Mark CD. Yeah, and there's two. If they're going to go back and use um, plots from the original Star Trek series. Let's think about that. They went out and found Khan because Admiral Marcus said that they were scouring the galaxy for sources of intelligence and power that they could use against the Klingons because he thought that a war with them was inevitable, right? And that they weren't prepared for it. So let's think about the original series. All the things that they could have gone out and found that were more lethal and more useful to that end than Khan would have been. Well, I can think of one off the top of my head. How about they get that doomsday machine thing and just point it in the direction of the Klingons? I mean, that would have been something they could have done. Uh, They could have gone and, oh, geez, what's the episode where, what am I thinking now? Uh, Oh, they could have gone to the the time machine. Remember the planet with the the time machine? The city on the edge of forever? Oh, yeah, and they they visit that, um, the Guardian. Yep. 
there's two episodes where they visit the Guardian. Yep. Why don't they just go to the Guardian, go back in time, and, like, you know, fuck with the Klingons or something like that, or do what they got to do there. They could have done something like that, and it would have made just as much sense as finding Khan and having him design all your ships and stuff for you. Or after they had Khan design the ship, why didn't they just put him back on ice? Yeah, I mean, why didn't they just... <laughs> I don't understand. If Khan's so smart, like... Why didn't he see the obvious outcome that you're going to design the ship for him and kill everybody he wants dead, and then he's going to let you go? He's going to help your friends get off the frozen ship, and you guys are all going to go on an adventure together. Like, how fucking gullible do you have to be as a super genius to think the bad guy who's conniving enough to kill his bosses and then build a doomsday ship is just going to let you go on your merry way? Well, I mean, he made Khan do it by saying that he was holding the other yeah, I know. crew members he's, hostage. Yeah, he's holding them hostage, but Khan should have been, I guess, if he's such a genius, thinking the whole time, like, hmm, this guy's going to fuck me at some point. Yeah, he should have just, you know, played his trump card and said, okay, fine, go ahead and kill me. I'm not going to help you because you're just going to kill all my friends anyway. Right, yeah, it's like, Khan's a genius, but he's not at all thinking, like, all right, how can I fuck this guy before he fucks me? And I guess another thing that really really confuses me about this movie is that, you know, I guess the way I would have written this is that maybe Eric Bana's ship could have found the Botany Bay while it was roaming around for 20 years or whatever. Maybe that's how Khan might have gotten some exposure to what's going on and sort of figured things out. Yeah, that would have at least given it a little more continuity with the events from the first movie. Because I think as much as I dislike Star Trek Enterprise, one of the better sequences in that is where the the con augment things dr soong's little genetically engineered kids right. kill the klingons yeah i mean that's cool and that is like the klingons are ultimate warriors but how would you do against people who are essentially captain america you know perfect reflexes and everything that would have been another i guess avenue to explore but con just shows up with a, like the the flying f-16 hovercraft at Federation headquarters. Yeah, nobody pew, 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 pew. Yeah, nobody questions the, the heavily armed ship hovering next to the level where the admirals are hanging out. I know. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the, the scene from The Godfather Part 3 where the commission is meeting in that uh, oh, penthouse yeah. hotel, and then like the, the helicopter comes in and starts blasting all of them. And it's like I, didn't, I couldn't take it seriously when I saw it. I was just laughing. I was like, okay, they just ripped off The Godfather Part 3. And if you're yeah. going to rip off a Godfather movie, you don't rip off Part 3. No. <laughs> You probably want to stick with part one or part two. Right. Be safe. And that's just one of many things about this movie that just pisses me off so much as a Star Trek fan, just because it's such an insult to Star Trek in general. And Well, let's talk about um, Spock, because Spock and Kirk's a big part of this movie. Yeah. So angry Spock's back. He's so mad. He's going to punch Khan in the face for like 10 minutes while they're stuck on an exciting hover truck chase through San Francisco. Yeah. He's going to beat him up because Khan's the bad guy and Spock fucking hates him. Even though, you know, I think Spock at the most probably would have said like, yeah, you're kind of a dick, so I'm going to Vulcan pinch you now. Yeah. Not punching him in the face and, you know, trying to beat the shit out of him. Um, But the Kirk and Spock, like, that's obviously Wrath of Khan because Khan's there. Somebody's got to die at the end. Yes, uh, this this is yeah. the worst part. Of- I actually had never really read Kirk as being somebody who would have thought of that engineering little do dad like i mean i I, spock doing that makes perfect sense because spock would know that he would read the ship's technical manual during his off time and you know jerk off to it but 
Yeah, Kirk, Kirk yeah. knows how to command the ship, right. not fix it. Kirk, no, I think he, he's demonstrated to know the basics of what's going on, but he always <coughs> kind of defers to the people who are the experts in their individual area. He's not like the hands-on kind of guy who's going to go down there and recalibrate the warp core to save everybody. Right, so they do the cheesy spin on their Wrath of Khan moment, and yeah. Kirk does the sacrifice instead of Spock, and Spock gets all weepy instead of Kirk. And, and uh, Spock yells Khan. Right, which is the most cringeworthy moment in the movie because it's so laughable, so stupid. And then the whole sacrifice that they set up there ultimately means nothing because it's like they just hit the reset button on the video game and Kirk gets revived by Khan Superblood. Well, it's like when you're in The Legend of Zelda, the Ocarina of Time, when you you flop over and die, the little fairy comes out of the jar and restores your health. Yeah, that's like, exactly what it was. Bones figures out that Khan's blood is magic because it brings a Tribble back to life. Let a, you know, suspending for a moment that the Tribbles and humans are completely different, and then injecting radiation-laden dead Kirk with that just undoes all of the horrible damage that radiation would do to you. I mean, look at what that uh, episode of Stargate Meridian where Daniel gets the radiation overdose. Yeah, see, I mean, they actually did a realistic like, portrayal. That's there. what happens when you get too much radiation. You don't get injected with Khan's magic. Even if Khan's blood could, you know, restart your heart or whatever, you would still be so horribly fucked up from all that radiation. Right. Your skin will melt off and flake off. Your organs are going to shut down. You're going to, like, bleed out of your orifices. and Well, you, your insides are going to liquefy, basically. Yeah. And that's what's going to kill you. But even if you could restart your heart, you're, you're going to die horribly. Kirk has, like, every kind of cancer possible. But it's okay, because Khan's blood is magic. It's just, it's so fucking stupid. Yeah. I I don't, really, I don't know how Paramount let this movie get made the way it got made. Just the only explanation I can come up with is that they had just been so desperate for so long to get Star Trek back on track Mm -hmm. that they were willing, in the words of Alfred from The Dark Knight, to turn to a man that they didn't fully understand J.J. Abrams and his merry crew of writers and collaborators who took Star Trek and turned it into a generic fuckfest action franchise that we don't need or want, and it made money, so Paramount was okay with it. Yeah, that's what I think what happened is Paramount saw that the Star Trek 09 made back its budget, made a tidy profit, maybe not as big of a one as they would have wanted, but it still made its money back and made them some extra and then they said, oh, Khan. Everybody knows who Khan is. Wrath of Khan was a really good movie. People love that movie. So this one has Khan in it, huh? Well, that's going to be great. Into Darkness, and we're going to take it in a dark and edgy direction. Sure, sure, that's great. It's got Khan in it, too. So it's a, I guess in their mind, it was a, a can't-miss hit. Yeah, and remember, we got to put maximum lens flare in here. Yeah, I, you know what? I would have had more respect for the outcome if they hadn't tried to dress it up as something meaningful, saying like, mm, this is about drone strikes and the morality of engaging with people. and Yeah, like Kirk's like speech at the end, like, we can't sacrifice the values that we have. Yeah. It's a, it's a, they tried to do the, the Kirk talking about the Constitution speech, but it was without the obvious parallel of the, was it the comms and the Changs there? Yeah, and yeah. but yeah, the problem with all of that is that it doesn't mean anything because nothing that happened in the movie before that moment does anything to get us to that point. 
No. Right? The movie's not about like drone strikes and legality and ethics and stuff like that because uh we don't there's no exposition talking about that. There's no character development showing us that. It's just let's go here, let's go here, let's go here, let's shoot this guy, let's blast this guy, let's get con, let's fly across space like in our hoverboard. You know? <laughs> Well, I think the thing that really irks me about the movie, too, is that the way it starts is they're trying to stop the, the lava planet from blowing up. Yeah. Which I think it's pretty clearly established throughout, especially the next generation, that the the go-to in that situation in the playbook is just let it happen, let everybody die. Right. Prime directive. But even then, cold fusion, the word cold is in there, but <coughs> I, mean, I guess a couple things from a science perspective. Just dumping cold water in a volcano is not going to do anything. And number two, cold fusion is just a way of making energy. It's a great way to, you know, recharge your electric car. It's a really bad way to cool down a volcano. But it's cold, right? And audiences know what cold means, so let's just put it in there. You know, It's so fucking insulting. As much as I blame J.J. Abrams for this movie, I, I just have to come back to, I blame Orsi and Kurtzman the most. The writers of this movie. Yeah. You know, what are you going to... I don't expect that much to begin with from the guys who brought us the three first Transformers movies, the Michael Bay Transformers Did movies. Did those even have scripts, though? Yeah, they wrote them. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think they were just scribbled down on a page. But, you know, you guys are dealing with something that is much more important to many more people in Star Trek. And you just messed it up. And you did it in a really, I want to say slimeball way, especially because I've seen the interviews where, you know, like Comic-Cons and stuff, where they've responded to fans who've criticized them for a lot of the same stuff that, that we've just said. And Orsi at least gets right up in their faces and, you know, tells them that they're full of shit and stuff. And, you know, he's clearly delusional about Star Trek Into Darkness and what the movie meant and how well it turned out. And so he, I mean, he just is not living on the same plane of reality as the rest of us. It was a bad, bad movie. And they're out there telling the fans that they're full of shit because they didn't understand what the movie was going for. It's like, no, you wrote a bad movie, man. Yeah. The movie was going for the nine ninety five It cost to go to a fucking theater is what it was going for. Yeah. The, yeah. the movie was going for uh, making a lot of money at the theater and then getting even more money in DVD sales. That's what it was going for. Well, don't forget the other, the parallel channels of marketing. Yes. The, the con serial video games, con t-shirts. Oh yeah. And that's even, you know, again, not directly attributable to them, but the video game for this movie sucked. I think it is directly attributable to them though. Cause if they had made a better movie, the video game would have almost certainly been better because it would have been based off of something better. Yeah. So that's all I have to say about Star Trek Into Darkness. And I think I'll leave the bottom line on that for me is that it is not a Star Trek movie. No. I's, it just ignores all the Star Trek stuff, even down to the basic things like Khan's gigantic F-16 he's shooting everybody with, has like a turboprop fan under the bottom of it. That's how it's flying. That make that's just so stupid. Like, I don't know. Star Trek's clearly figured out flying. They have anti gravity and shit, but this thing has a turboprop engine. Cause, oh, I'm sorry, it has a turbine engine, not a turboprop. I wouldn't be surprised if it had a turboprop though. Put some propellers on the front of it. Okay, so we're done with the hate fest now. We've we've gone through the best and the worst. So now you know where we stand on the Star Trek films. Uh, if you like it. Tell us if you disagree with us. Want to know that too. 
um, whatever. That's how we feel. Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, email superhigh at superhighsci-fi.com or you can check out at superhighsci-fi on Twitter and direct message all of your hatred to us because we'll thrive on it. Yes. And uh, thank you for listening.